So tonight is our first kind of official beacon for the summer. Uh, usually, summertime is a, for us is a little bit different since if we were still all meeting at church uh, during the summer, many of you are usually home or away. But obviously, this year is a little bit different. So I'm glad that we can still do this, even though it's online, like Michael said. Uh, but today, we're going to be starting a new study that is going to last us through the summer. And we'll be studying the fruit of the Spirit. And maybe you guys are familiar with the fruit of the Spirit. It comes from Galatians 5, 22 and 23, which Michael read for us. Um, and there are nine of them, nine qualities or fruit or whatever you want to call them. And so what we're going to be doing this summer is each week we'll be focusing in on one of them at a time and hopefully learning what the Bible has to say about it. Uh, but here's why I kind of I chose this study for us. Uh, I know that summer is sort of a, a strange or a unique time for you guys as college students. I know that many of you have less on your plate in terms of classes or different time commitments. Um, many of you are also at home where I know it's easy to revert to your younger selves and many of you are away from any kind of regular fellowship and we're all in that boat to some extent with, uh, with this pandemic. But I know just speaking from personal experience that like all of those things can be a combination for, for idleness, um, for inactivity, uh, for complacency, and uh, maybe even lack of spiritual growth. And I know that summers especially can be a time where we become uh, somewhat spiritually stagnant and, uh, and so our, our desire for you guys, as those who serve you in Beacon, uh, for me as your pastor, uh, as the staff is always in everything that we do in this ministry is that you're growing in the Lord. The way that Paul puts it in Galatians 4, 19 is he's, he says, or his hope for the believers there is that Christ would be formed in you. Um, and that's our hope for you guys as well. Um, and that's true now during the summer. And that's true now, especially during this kind of strange pandemic that we're in. Um, we've talked at least a few times about spiritual growth during Beacon this past year, if you guys remember. We've talked about how each person grows from a different starting point. We all grow at different uh, rates or a different pace, and we all grow through different means, right? We've talked about how the importance of spiritual growth is heading in the right direction. Like that's what we want to focus on is, are we moving in the right direction? But something else about spiritual growth that we learn in the Bible is that it is observable. Okay? It's something that we can measure. Uh, otherwise, how do you know which direction you're headed, right? Otherwise, how do you know if you're even growing, if you can't observe it or see it? And the markers that, we, we, that scripture gives us is what it often calls fruit. Uh, so if you're growing, then these specific things, these fruit should be becoming more apparent in your life. And so that's kind of why we're doing this study. Okay, we hope that this summer or this season is a time in which you guys are all growing in the Lord. And so what does that look like? Well, let's focus in on these nine things. Okay, let's focus in on the fruit of the spirit and see how we're doing, right? Let's, let's maybe take a closer look at areas of our lives that we can continue to grow in. Um, and so that's why, that's why I chose to do this study. Um, in the summer, we're also gonna do small groups a little differently. As you guys know, your small groups from this past school year, they concluded um, a couple weeks ago. And for this summer, we're gonna be doing actually random 
discussion groups each week. Uh, and so that means that you will probably see different people in your small group each week and that it's also going to be co-ed. Um, and there are pros and cons either way that we choose to do it. But I hope that doing it this way and, and just seeing different people each week helps with fellowship a little bit. I know that the past couple of months, um, you guys hopped on this call and you pretty much just interacted with your small group. So hopefully this allows you to interact with more people. And I know that you might not be able to go as in depth as before, you know, being with the same group, but uh, I'm counting on you guys. Like I I'm depending on you guys to participate and to really help make the time profitable for each other. Okay. So that's how this is going to be after the message, how we do uh, discussion groups. But with that said, let me read from, Galatians 5, 22 and 23 again. This is where we get the fruit of the Spirit. And then um, I'll pray and then we'll jump in. Okay, so this is Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. Uh, Paul says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Right, let's pray. God, we thank you for this time of fellowship. We thank you that as believers, we have the life of the spirit within us, uh, that he indwells our hearts and that as he works in us, that he produces um, these fruit in our lives, that it doesn't depend on us, but it depends on your work within us and, and through us. And so father, as we turn our attention to your word um, and as we, uh, allow scripture to examine, help us examine ourselves. I pray that you would grant us humility, um, help us to be honest before your word, help us to desire to be fruitful in our lives. And I pray, especially when it comes to uh, this particular fruit of love, God, this, this thing that is so important um, to the Christian life, um, that you would help us to love like Christ did, help us to understand your love more so that we might love others better. Uh, in light of that. God, we thank you for this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let me give you some context um, about the book of Galatians, because we just read from a couple verses in Galatians, but let's back up a little bit, and I want to help us kind of understand the fruit of the Spirit in kind of the, bar the bigger context. Okay, so Paul, he first met some of these Galatian believers when he was sent out to preach the gospel there. You can read about that in Acts 13 and 14. Um, and the people in the region of Galatia were primarily Gentiles. Okay, they heard the gospel preached by Paul, and they responded by placing their faith in Jesus. And from there, they began this church in, in the region of Galatia. Well, after Paul left, there started to be some trouble that, was, uh, that started brewing in the church. And there is these people that were known as the Judaizers um, who came in, and they started to preach a false gospel. And they started to teach that in order to get all of the benefits and all of the blessings of salvation as God's covenant people, you didn't just have to uh, become a Christian. You didn't just have to place your faith in Jesus, like Paul said, but you actually had to also become a Jew. You, you had to uh, practice or observe circumcision. You had to obey the law of Moses. You had to do things like observe the Sabbath and abide by certain dietary restrictions. Okay, so they place all these requirements on top of faith in Jesus to become part of God's people. And if you know anything about Paul, if there's anything that makes Paul upset, it is when people distort or when they add onto the gospel. 
And so that's why Paul writes this letter uh, to the Galatians to denounce these Judaizers, these false teachers, and to call out their false gospel. And this is why if you read through the book of Galatians, Paul mentions the, uh, the word freedom so often. For example, in Galatians 5.1, he says that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Right? You're free from all of these uh, requirements of the law. Don't submit yourself again to that. But then this other question comes up, right? And maybe you guys can anticipate where this is going. If you just talk about freedom so much, freedom taken to the extreme can be abused, can it? If you're not under the law, which is what the Judaizers were teaching, then does that mean that you can just do whatever you want? Um, Can you just abuse your freedom? And there's a a word for this. It's called antinomianism. Um, That's kind of uh, extreme grace, like do whatever you want. There's no law. Um, And there's a word that also comes up in Galatians that talks about this, and it's the word flesh. Um, Our flesh is the part of us that is fallen. It's sinful. It's our sinful desires. And so these, the objection to like Paul's teaching on freedom would say, okay, if you don't have, if if you don't have to submit to the law, then doesn't that mean that people can just be free to indulge the flesh and all of these sinful desires. And Paul says in the letter to Galatians, he says, no, there is a better way. Okay. It's not the way of legalism. Uh, It's not the way of, licentiousness of doing whatever you want, but it is a way, it's a life that is led by the spirit. And he uses different words or different ways of saying that. He says, walk by the spirit, be led by the spirit, live by the spirit, uh, keep in step with the spirit. Um, If you look in verses 16 and 18 of chapter five, this is what he says. He says, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And then verse 18, but if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law, right? So those are those two things we just talked about, right? Uh, not indulging the desires of the flesh and not submitting yourselves under the law. That's the better way of life that is led by the spirit. Okay, so then in verses 19 to 21 of chapter five, we get to this list of what Paul calls the works of the flesh. And there are things like uh, sexual immorality, impurity, idolatry, envy, drunkenness, anger, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And then finally, after that, then we get to verses 22 and 23 and we get to the fruit of the spirit. Okay. Now I think the way that we're going to want to read verses 22 and 23 is like this, that we can think, okay, if verses 19 to 21 is a list of all these bad things, right? If it's a list of all these vices, then verses 22 and 23 is this corresponding list of virtues, right? If verses 19 and 21 is bad, then verses 22 and 23 is good, right? Don't do these, do this instead. And like, I don't think that's a bad way of understanding it, but I don't think that's a complete understanding of what Paul is trying to say here. Remember, go back to the big point in Galatians. It's about how as Christians, we're no longer under the law, right? We're no longer under all of these rules, And so if we read all of these uh, virtues or qualities or fruit as rules that we're supposed to do, then I think it's kind of missing the point. Okay, so how do we understand this? Well, the word fruit is important. And let me just give you three quick thoughts about this. Um, I think this is helpful for just framing 
our entire study. Okay, so the first one is this, that fruit are a sign of life. Fruit are a sign of life. Uh, you, pre- you probably recognize that fruit is a pretty common metaphor throughout the Bible. Right? For example, Jesus says in Matthew 7, verses 16 to 20, that you will recognize a tree by its fruit. Okay, and, and sometimes the point of that metaphor, that fruit metaphor, is to challenge or to rebuke. In other words, sometimes the point of that is to say your lack of, of good fruit should be a sign that there's a more serious problem. Okay, it's a rebuke or a challenge. And even as Christians, I think sometimes for us, it's appropriate to, to do that. Right? It's appropriate to do some honest self-examination. Uh, that's what we saw back in James 2, right? Where we should ask ourselves the question, is my faith evidenced by the fruit of good works? Okay, so we need to ask that question sometimes. But there is also another way that we see the Bible talk about fruit. And it's a slightly different emphasis. Okay, so fruit or the lack of it, it doesn't just expose deadness, which is what we just talked about, but it's also evidence of life. Fruit doesn't just expose deadness, but it's also evidence of life. And I think that should be encouraging to us. Uh, For example, in John 15, Jesus gives the well-known metaphor of the vine and the branches, right? And in John 15, he talks about bearing fruit, okay? That's in that passage. But but really, Jesus seems to describe it as this byproduct of abiding in him. That's the emphasis. Abide in me, and then you will bear fruit. And so what Jesus says is that fruit is evidence that we are in Jesus and that he's in us. It's evidence that he's working in us and through us to produce fruit. Now, I think both of these aspects are here in the fruit of the spirit, but I think especially that second one, that it's evidence of life, and especially in the context of Galatians. The fruit of the spirit are the natural byproduct of the life of the spirit in you. A tree doesn't bear fruit, because some law in nature says that it's supposed to. A tree bears fruit because that's just what it does when it's alive. Um, And so it is with all of these virtues. If the spirit is in you, and all that that means is that you are a Christian. It doesn't mean that you're some spiritual, like super spiritual, holy person. If the spirit is in you, if the spirit is in you, just means that you are a Christian. Then these things will naturally overflow in your life because of what he's doing in you, because you are alive. And so these will naturally come out. Okay, so that's the first thing is fruit are a sign of life. Um, Second, fruit grow over time. Okay, fruit grow over time. Uh, I feel like when we put it in terms of the metaphor, uh, we're like, yeah, of course, right? Of course, fruit grow over time. We, We get that. But then when it comes to the Christian life, I think we are often pretty impatient when it comes to growth or when it comes to change. For example, we can grow discouraged when it seems like we're not growing, um, or we can grow prideful or self-righteous when it seems like other people aren't growing. And those are both because we are impatient, right? We are impatient with spiritual growth. I mean, do you realize that even the smallest degree of change or of growth is evidence of the transforming power of the spirit in you. And often this growth takes place during 
uh, your ordinary everyday moments, which is why I think we don't often notice change as, as often as we should. Um, but the spirit is shaping and changing you, not just in terms of like doing these virtues more often, but the spirit is shaping and changing you into becoming a different kind of person. Okay, we're talking about character here when we're talking about the fruit of the spirit. And uh, character development or uh, growing in character takes time. Okay, so as we go through this series over the next couple months, I want you to think of it in terms of that way, right? Think in terms of growth and in terms of change rather than yes or no. Like rather than like checking this box or not checking this box, uh, think how can I be growing in these things? Because it takes time. And then the last thing is that fruit is singular. Okay, fruit is singular. Um, notice that Paul in verse 22 calls it the fruit of the spirit, fruit singular, right? Not fruits, plural. And uh, just, I think a good illustration of this is that this is different than Paul's list, list of spiritual gifts elsewhere in the Bible, right? For example, in Romans 12 or 1 Corinthians 12. With those, the gifts are plural and they're also varied. Okay? In those uh, passages, we learn that some people have this gift and some people have other gifts. We don't all have the same gifts. We all kinda, it all kind of fits together. Well, it's not that way with the fruit of the Spirit. Okay, Paul says here, it is one fruit, meaning all of these things, love, joy, peace, patience, and the list goes on and on. All of these things should be showing up in your life. They're all related. And other believers don't make up for your lack of any one of them, right? You can't say, oh, I'm not a really joyful person, but this person uh, is like super joyful. They, they make up for it. And I think this is important because some of you are, uh, naturally, just for whatever reason, you are going to be, uh, quote unquote, better at some of these than others. Like maybe you are just a naturally patient person. Okay, like you're okay with waiting. Um, you don't get upset easily. You're just naturally that way. And praise God for that, right? I think we can learn from each other's strengths. But we have to be careful about picking and choosing. We have to be careful about thinking that it's okay if we're not so great at uh, say self-control, for example, because, uh, you know, at least I got goodness or I got faithfulness down. I think we need to ask ourselves honestly and humbly, like what are your natural personality traits and what are genuine spiritual fruit? That is, what is the, the result of the Holy Spirit's work in you? Okay, and so this passage challenges us towards this balanced growth in Christ-likeness. Right? It might humble us, I think, to realize that we are really only as mature as our weakest link, so to speak. That we're only as mature as our biggest area of immaturity. Um, John Stott, he put it like this. He says, for uh, it is together, uh, the fruit of the spirit, that they constitute Christ-likeness. To cultivate some without the others is to be a lopsided Christian. And uh, like Michael said, I'm really glad he mentioned this, that Jesus Christ was the ultimate balanced example of all of these qualities. And so to grow in Christ-likeness is to grow in all of these as well. Okay, so uh, fruit is singular, and we should be pursuing all of these uh, because it is the, the, the living out of the Spirit in us. All right, hopefully that helps lay some of the groundwork for the rest of the study. Um, but the specific fruit of the Spirit that we're looking at tonight is the first one in the list, and it's love. And it is first for a reason. 
Um, like we just said earlier, all of these qualities and virtues are important. We are really talking about one fruit that we're growing in and, and becoming more evident rather than like separate virtues that we're stapling onto our lives. But over and over again throughout the Bible, we do see how God often talks about uh, the primacy of love, that it really is seemingly one of the most important things. Uh, for example, in Matthew 22, 36 to 40, uh, there's a lawyer. He goes up to Jesus and he says, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus actually responds with two commandments rather than one, but they are both love commandments. He says, first, it is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then second, it is to love your neighbor as yourself. And he says uh, that all of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Uh, Paul, he says something similar in Romans 13, 8 and 9. He says the commandments, you shall, not, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not, you shall not steal or covet, uh, and any other commandments. All of those things are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It is the fulfilling of the law. Um, we see it here in Galatians 5 as well. If you back up to verse 6, uh, Paul says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So uh, in verse six, he's talking about that legalistic tendency in our hearts, right? As, as Christians, we understand that it's not about gaining acceptance before God. That's what he's talking about, circumcision and uncircumcision, right? But it's not about gaining acceptance, but it's about obeying God out of a love for him, right? A faith that expresses itself through love. And then if you look at verse 13, uh, Paul talks about the other side of it, right? He talks about freedom. And he says, do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Um, he says that our, our kind of licentious tendencies to fulfill our own selfish and sinful desires. Uh, and Paul says, use your freedom not for yourself, but to serve one another humbly in love. And so there it is again, the primacy of love. It is uh, the better way. It's a love for God and it's a love for others. And so hopefully you get the picture so far. If there is anything that can be said, if we can point to one thing that is primary or central or essential to being a Christian, to becoming more like Jesus, then I, can, I think we can say it's to love, right? It's this virtue of love. Um, here's the definition of love that Lighthouse uses, and you might have heard Pastor Kim say this from the pulpit before, but, he said, but uh, we define it this way, that love is seeking another's, high, another's highest good, even at cost to self. Love is seeking another person's highest good, even at cost to self. Um, the Greek word is agape, and even if you don't know Greek, I'm guessing that some of you might be familiar with agape. Uh, agape love is different than like romantic or sexual love, which is eros. Um, it's different from friendship or brotherly love, uh, which is philia. Agape love involves faithfulness, commitment, and volition. Okay, agape love is not just like a sentimental or sappy feeling-based love, but it is a determined act of the will. It is a joyful resolve to put another person's good above your own. And the Bible says that we know and we learn how to love 
with this kind of love from first knowing God's love. Um, there are a lot of passages that talk about this, but here's just one of them. First John 3.16, it says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Okay, so um, even as we start out, I hope you realize how important it is, especially now, to really have this biblical understanding of love. And Christian love isn't like what you see portrayed in pop culture or in entertainment. Um, Christian love isn't necessarily just agreeing with anyone, right? Like, oh, if you don't, you know, uh, agree with my opinion, you're not being loving. That's not Christian love. The fruit of love is so opposite to our culture of selfishness. Uh, Our culture, it preaches the message, you do you no matter what. And biblical love says, no, you seek the good of another, even at cost to yourself. There's a lot more I think we could say, a lot of different directions that we could take this message. But I want to try to get specific, and I want to try to get practical. And so rather than camp out on uh, like one passage like we normally do, I want to give you just some pointed questions to consider about the fruit of love in your life. And these questions aren't comprehensive, I don't think, but hopefully they cover some of the big ideas that we learn about love from Scripture. Okay, so I have seven questions. Um, The first one is this. Do you love only those who are worthy or deserving of your love? Do you love only those who are worthy or deserving of your love? Uh, Listen to what Jesus says in Luke 6, 32 to 35. He says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. So hopefully you got that. If you love or if you do good or if you lend money to someone, knowing that you will get it right back, Jesus basically says, what good is that? Right? Even sinners do the same. There's no risk uh, involved. There's, you, don't, you don't have any skin in the game. And his point here isn't that like those are bad or wrong things to do. But Jesus is pointing out one of the distinctives of Christian love. It's that loving others in the way that, that Jesus calls us to love is hard because it's unnatural. Right? It is natural for us to love those who we think are deserving of our love. Um, whether that's based on the type of relationship, whether that's what they might give us in return, uh, whether that's based on how they've treated us in the past, whatever reason might be to, to uh, gain our merit or gain their merit. It's natural for us to love those that we think are deserving. But if those are the only kinds of people that we choose to love, then it's very possible for our love to be just transactional. Right? I love you because you give me uh, fill in the blank, right? You give me respect or affection or help or status or affirmation. And when that happens, love becomes a mean of getting rather than giving. You need to ask yourself, are you willing to love those who can't repay you back? Right? Are you willing to love those, uh, even those who wrong you? Are you willing to love your enemies? And so uh, for you tonight, who are those people in your life that you find it difficult to love? I'm going to say this at least a few times throughout the message tonight, but this is how we see Christ loved us. Romans 5, 6 to 8, it says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. 
but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Okay, so if that wasn't clear enough, Paul says it in three different ways. Right? He says, while we were still weak, uh, while we were ungodly, and while we were still sinners, that is when Christ died for us. It wasn't when we were deserving. Um, second question is this. Do you demonstrate love with action? Do you demonstrate love with action? 1 John three seventeen to 18. It says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, it closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Uh, we saw a similar idea back in James, if you guys remember. Uh, but John says, if you see someone else in need, but you don't actually do anything about it, then what is the value of that? Right? How can you say that God's love abides in you if uh, you don't actually see it play out? And so we're not just talking about this like, abstract philosophical concept. We're not just talking about this sappy sentimental feeling. We see here that love takes form. It takes shape through tangible actions. Um, I think first John 4:20 is a super convicting verse. It says, if anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who did not for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And so one way that we manifest a love for God is in practical and visible love for others. It's a love that can be seen, John says. And often this takes place in the people and the opportunities that are right in front of us. It takes place in the small things, not always the spectacular things. Um, In the Gospels, someone asked Jesus the question, who is my neighbor? And Jesus proceeds to tell the famous parable of the Good Samaritan. And basically that whole story illustrates that your neighbor is basically anyone that God brings your way, right? Your neighbor is anyone that, God, anyone that uh, crosses your paths. That person is your neighbor. And the question is, do you love that person? Um, I, I know that especially now with all of the current issues in the news, there's been a lot of talk about like large scale societal Uh, or systemic change. And I think a lot of it is necessary and a lot of it's probably good. But one of the things that I'm really thankful for, for our elders, uh, just in the way that they've shepherded us and Lighthouse through this, is they constantly remind us of that first small step, right? We can start with praying and we can start with loving our neighbor, right? We can start with loving the person who's right in front of us. We can start with loving the people that God has already brought our way putting love into action uh, in those opportunities. Uh, Esau Macaulay, he is a journalist with the New York Times, and he has a good quote on what this looks like for the church during the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, He wrote this. He says, the data suggests that what the world needs now is not our physical presence, but our absence. This does not seem like the stuff of legend. What did the church do in the year of our Lord 2020 when sickness swept our land? Well, we met in smaller groups, we washed our hands, and we prayed. Unglamorous as this is, it may be the shape of faithfulness in our time. And so sometimes love looks like that, right? Something small like that. Uh, But love needs to be put into action. Um, Third question is this. Are your actions guided by love? Are your actions guided by love? 
what I mean by this question is kind of the reverse of the previous point. Okay, so it's, it is possible for us to talk um, or to even preach about loving others without actually doing, doing anything about it, right? Without actually putting it into practical action and meeting other people's needs. That's what, that's what we just talked about. But it's also possible for us to act. Uh, it's, it's possible for us for, to even do a good thing and to do it without a heart of love. Okay, that's what I'm talking about in this third question. Um, listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 3. This is a famous love chapter. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, those are some pretty extreme statements, aren't they? Right? Paul says you can do all of these super godly things. You can give everything away, uh, including your own life. But if it's not done in love, you gain nothing. You know, it's interesting that a lot of these instances uh, of these kinds of things that are not done in love that we see in scripture, they are things having to do with religion. Right? They are things that are, that are morally good, uh, that are done with this facade of devotion. And the Pharisees in Jesus' day were an obvious example of this. Right? They were super zealous for God. They were the supposed religious experts. And yet Jesus repeatedly rebukes them for their act of love. They were doing the right thing on the outside, but they didn't have a heart of love. Um, in Matthew 23, Jesus gives... Uh, basically pronounces a bunch of woes or a bunch of pretty harsh rebukes on them. And one of the things that he accuses them of is that uh, he says they have strained out a gnat, like, uh, like a little fly gnat, and they've swallowed a camel. And it's kind of a weird picture. But what, what Jesus means is that they have taken this small thing, the gnat, and they have stretched it out, they've strained it out, and they've made it this huge deal. In their case, it was things like tithing. Um, or obeying certain laws. They, they stretched that out and made it this big thing, and they swallowed a camel, right? This big thing, they totally ignored it. They ignored uh, their call to love other people. And so for us, I think just a couple examples, knowledge is a good thing, right? It is good to, to know uh, the Bible, to know theological knowledge, but in 1 Corinthians 8, 1, Paul says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And so for you, do you use your knowledge as this thing that you hold over other people's heads? Or do you, is your knowledge uh, equipped with love? Do you use it in love? Um, or Ephesians 4.15, it talks about speaking the truth in love. Okay, so I think what we learn from that is that what we say is important, but so is how we say it. And so do we speak humbly? Do we seek to build up um, and to give grace with our words rather than to correct or to tear down or or just to say the right thing, right? Do we actually care how it's communicated and how it's received? Are we doing it with a heart of love? Uh, fourth question is this. Does your love initiate and move towards others? Does your love initiate and move towards others? First John 4.19, it's a pretty well-known verse. It says, we love because he first loved us. Um, so from that verse, we learned that our love is a responsive type of love, right? It's an overflow from the love that we've received from God. 
But we also learn from this verse that Christ's love is an initiating type of love. And it says he loved, he first loved us. He went first. He loved first. Um, If you've been joining us for the systematic theology classes on Monday nights, you're going to learn this later when we go through the doctrine of salvation. But God's initiating love goes back even before the foundations of the world, uh, that he was the one who set his love upon you, not because of your merit, not because of your worthiness, but only because of his grace. His, His initiating type of love. And for us, a love that initiates, it takes thoughtfulness. It requires strength and humility. And you think about it, it's hard to be the one to say sorry first. Um, it's hard to be the one to uh, break a tense silence first. It's hard to think of how to creatively and thoughtfully love or bless someone else out of the, out of the blue, right? Spontaneously, it's far easier to just return the favor, to give the obligatory gift right back after someone has given a gift to you. Um, A love that initiates moves towards others. It doesn't wait for others to move towards you. It doesn't move away from others who you you don't want to be around. It moves towards other people, and that's what Jesus did for us. In the famous chapter, Philippians 2, we get a picture of this. And Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant, was born in the likeness of men. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And this picture in Philippians 2 is just Jesus, keep, uh, Jesus continually going further down and down and down and down to where we are. Right? It's a picture of Christ moving uh, to, towards us to where we are. And so does your love initiate? Does it move towards other people? Number five. Do you love even when it costs you? And when we talk about a costly kind of love, of course we know that God's love for us uh, cost Jesus his own blood on the cross. Um, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, it talks about how Jesus endured the cross and he despised the shame. Um, What that means is he didn't consider the shame significant compared to the joy that was set before him. That is the glory of God and the salvation of sinners. Right. He was willing to pay that cost because of the joy that was set before him. And so what about you? Do you love even when it costs you? I think some of the biggest barriers to loving well uh, for us, for a lot of us, is just like a love for our own comfort. Right? We like love our own convenience too much. Uh, we love our own uh, comfort zones too much. We're often unwilling to pay the price of those things. And Often it's easy to get get away with because, uh, quite frankly, there are other relationships that we can always turn to, right? There are like less needy people, less needy friends, less uh, tiring friends that we can turn to. Like we don't always have to pay a cost. Um, But love, biblical love, Christian love, gladly sacrifices for others and says that this other person is more important than my time than my resources and my convenience, my possessions. Uh, this other person is even more important than myself in my own life. Number six, does your love seek the other person's highest good? Does your love seek the other person's highest good? Now, what are we talking about when we say another person's highest good? And I think probably the simplest answer is that we are seeking the glory of God in their life. 
Okay, we're seeking these, uh, the other person's Christ-likeness and sanctification. Um, it doesn't mean that we are uh, like seeking something that we might want for ourselves from that person. It doesn't always mean that we are seeking what the other person wants for themselves. Uh, it doesn't mean that we're seeking the, the most convenient outcome, right? The most conflict-free outcome in the relationship. The fruit of love seeks what God would want for this other person a greater love and trust and obedience and worship of Christ, right? Seeking their godliness and their joy. And we see this in the love of a parent for a child, right? That's an illustration of this, that a parent doesn't just give a child whatever he, or, whatever he or she wants, right? If the kid wants candy before dinner, the parent just doesn't just give the, the kid candy, right? It's, and it's not because they don't love their child, but it's because they do love their child. It's out of love that they refrain um, from giving this kid candy. And so, for example, for us, um, to seek the highest good of an unbelieving friend or family member, it is to share the gospel with them. It is to pray that God opens their eyes to respond in faith. Or to seek the highest good of another brother or sister in Christ means that sometimes we need to be willing to have difficult conversations where we are speaking the truth in love or we have to point out something that the other person might not want to hear. And for those of you who like to avoid conflict, like me, um, seeking another person's highest good doesn't mean the absence of conflict all the time. Sometimes it means the possibility of entering into conflict for that person's good, for that person's Christ-likeness out of love. And so does your love seek the other person's highest good? And then finally, number seven, do you love others knowing that you are loved by God? Do you love others knowing that you are loved by God? We already looked at 1 John 4, 19 earlier. It's uh, the verse that says we love because he first loved us. And whenever we talk about the hard job of loving others with a Christ-like love, we have to go back to the fact that we have first been loved by God. God is the source of our love. He is the unending well that we need to return to over and over again to be refreshed and to draw water from. Because if God's love is not grounding the way that we love others, if God's love is not the foundation, if it's not orienting the way that we love other people, then we're going to be tempted to love out of our own strength. Right? We're going to be tempted to love out of obligation or out of fear or pride um, or to gain a reward or whatever other reason it might be. If God's love is not grounding the way that we love other people, we'll be tempted to think of ourselves as better than the other person when we extend forgiveness. We'll be tempted to keep others in our debt. But when we remember that we love only because he first loved us, and we recognize that the reason that we love is not because we have to, but it's because God's love has fundamentally changed us. 2 Corinthians 5.15, it says that Christ died for us so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but, but that we would live for him. Right? We just talked about how this whole culture is this culture of like selfishness, self-centeredness, just you doing you. Um, and the love of Christ changes us from that. It says we would no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us. When we ground ourselves in the love of God, we remember that we can forgive 70 times seven 
because that is what God did for us. And we will never outgive, we will never outforgive God. And we can love other people freely, not seeking anything in return because we have already received everything and more in Jesus Christ. And when we are wronged by others in our efforts to love them, we can remember that those are opportunities to become more like Jesus because that is what Jesus went through for us. And so as we close, I, I do encourage you um, to think through practical steps that you can take and to love other people well. Uh, like which one of these seven questions stands out to you? What is one thing you can do this week to apply that into your life, right? We just talked about that love in action. But even before that, maybe a first step that you can take is simply to meditate on the love of God. Uh, to read a chapter like Romans 8 or Ephesians 2 and to really soak yourself in God's love. Because the more that we are in awe of how loved we are by him, I think the more we are able to love others well. So let me just close by reading from 1 John 4, uh, verses 7 to 12. Uh, It says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are uh, the God of love, that you have loved us first, that you are the source and the strength from which we draw to love others well. God, I pray that uh, you would really teach us how to love like Christ did, um, that we would be willing to forgive, that we would be willing to move towards others, that uh, we would be uh, thoughtful, um, intentional in putting our love into action, that we would love all kinds of people, even those who are undeserving and those who have wronged us. I pray that everything that we do would be guided by this heart of love. God, we thank you that uh, because of your spirit dwelling in our hearts, that we have hope that this is a fruit that you will produce in our lives. And so help us this week to apply this, uh, grow us as people who are marked by love um, and, and who put you on display through the way that we love. Let me thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.